welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we have, this is going to be a fascinating uh, conversation, a fascinating dialogue or trialogue, um, because my two guests are going to, who have never met each other, obviously, um, are going to share their stories, and, um, and it will be interesting to see how that unfolds. Today, I'm calling the show today, Two Stories of Depression with Thought-Provoking Endings. Both of these guests have had experiences with depression, different experiences, different kinds of experiences, and um, they have come away learning a lot and that they want to share with you. So my first guest, uh, Kevin Berthea, you may have heard of, seen, um, he is... He, well, as he'll tell you his story, he lost sight of gratitude in 2005, and he attempted to take his life on the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, You may have seen pictures of him. Um, He's going to tell you exactly what happened, why, what made him get there in the first place, and what made him stop from, um, from actually deciding to take his life. Now, he's been featured by multiple media outlets, uh, there's a picture of him standing on the cord of the um, Golden Gate Bridge that was front page of the San Francisco Chronicle. It was placed on the 75 most iconic photos of the 21st century, and it's gone viral on social media. And he, today he is a grateful suicide prevention advocate, encouraging people to talk through their problems rather than think about ending their lives. Um, on a different different kind of story is Om Devi. She is the author of A Dialogue with Depression. And her story is that she um, watched her late husband, watched his mental health deteriorate for decades uh, in clinical depression. And she is trying in her new book to help other people who are silently struggling with the same Thing, having a loved one, a partner um, in clinical depression and feeling helpless to be able to, to turn them around. Uh, I'm not going to let her tell the rest of her story. I'm not going to sort of um, give you the ending, but, but it is a different ending, uh, shall I say, than Kevin Brathea. So, Kevin, why don't we start with you? Mm-hmm. First of all, I'm glad you're here to be on the show. <laughs> tell us your story. I appreciate it. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to share my story. I'm so grateful to be on your show today. You're very welcome. So what, let's start with what brought you to that fateful day where you found yourself uh, standing um, precariously on the Golden Gate Bridge. On uh, March 11, 2005, um, I was 22 years old. Um, at the time, I had just lost my job. I was just, just recently, um, four months from, you know, before four months to that day, I was just became a new father. Uh, I was struggling with so many different things, and I, I just finally I woke up one morning, and I was tired of struggling. I was tired of looking at myself. I was tired of finding ways to get through the day. I was tired of being feeling like I was a burden to the world. I was just tired. I was tired of living this lie that I've been living for my whole life, and 
on that day, March 11, 2005, I just got up, um, got got dressed, really didn't have any idea of where I wanted to do or how I wanted to end, end my life, um, but I just knew I had to figure out something. That's where the, the, the Golden Gate Bridge came about. Um, as I punched my gas at about 9 a.m. in the morning, and which is ironic is because I've never even been to the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, being from the Bay Area, born and raised in Oakland, California, I didn't even know of the Golden Gate Bridge or that it was iconic for suicide attempts at the time. Um, I took, took, took my time, drove, drove out there. Um, at that time, I just, I just, I just wanted to end it. Um, I didn't, I didn't have no, I had nothing inside of me wanted to talk to anybody. Nothing inside of me wanted to, wanted to, I mean, I wanted to get better, but I didn't think it was a quote. I didn't think I had a, I had a chance. I knew that, you know, I was tired of being in pain and, and I just wanted it to end. So when I went out there, it was just, it was all the purpose of, of thinking that today life is going to be better for everybody. Huh. Well, how long had you had you you've been you were thinking of killing yourself before, right? Before that day, I've battled. I've pretty much battled, um, pretty much battled depression my whole entire life. It started as early as age five for me. Um, I was my mom, my biological mom, uh, my adoptive mom told me early in life that I was adopted. So early in life, I, I looked at myself as different. I looked at myself as, as unworthy, as, as, as how can somebody give birth to me and, and then just give me up. So I've always looked at myself, you know, a certain way. And my, my laptop mom, um, you know, tried to give me help and counseling and things like that, but nothing ever really worked. Um, I was genetically born with a mental depression disorder that I inherited from my biological mom. So Wait, I've been you, battling this you were for a long time. Born, you were genetically born with what? With a mental depression disorder. With a mixed depression disorder? With a mental depression disorder. A mental uh, depression with, disorder, yes. Yes. You it's mean from genetics. because you, you, you found out later that your biological yeah, mother... Yeah, I, I inherited, yeah. I found out later when I was 16 when I met my mom that she has been battling depression her whole entire life and been on medications and different things like that. So I pretty much found out my history when I met her at 16. Uh-huh. And when you met her, did she, did you then continue to have a relationship with her, or did she not want yeah, to have I anything? Um, I met her at sixteen, three years after my, my after my adoptive parents' divorce. I pretty much sought her out because my my adoptive parents divorced, and I felt like I just needed something. I needed something to fulfill this hole that was on the inside of me. And I thought that meeting my adoptive mom was going to fulfill that hole, but it yeah. pretty much made it worse. Um, meeting her, I never was really psychologically ready to meet her because of all the feelings and all the remorse that I felt um, for her giving me up, but I acted like everything was fine. And once we got each other, around each other, the situation just in, ended up getting worse for me. Um, because she, why? Did, she, she did you feel be, that she didn't uh, uh, apologize or that she didn't really... I don't think... I, I, just, I just... At the time when I met her, um, I was 16, and I was looking for a lot more than what she can give me at the time. Uh-huh. And, and when I've been, I was coming into her life, she was only 30... 34 at the time. So she had enough, a lot of things going on in her life, and I just needed her to be a mom, something that she couldn't be at the time. Uh-huh. And it kind of, it pretty much, you know, I already pretty much had a good mom, so she pretty much raised the bar for what I thought a mom was going to be. So when I met my biological mom, I'm thinking, oh, well, th- you, you, this is, you, you probably going to be better than my, than my adoptive mm. mom because you, you gave birth to me, and that was nowhere near the case. Uh-huh. And so it's interesting that then you mentioned that uh, four months before you went to the bridge, you became a father. So that must have. I did. I became a. I became a. I became a father. Um, my daughter, who was supposed to be, um, she was supposed to be born July twenty third. Um, she came April sixth. 
which is, you know, five or six months before I went to, you know, um, actually before I lost my job in October of 2004, which is, which would have been four or five months before I, before I, you know, I gave birth to her before she was, you know, giving birth. And that kind of really spiraled me out of, out of control at the time. Uh huh. And then when you had, when, um, you, you had your baby, um, that brought back, that must have triggered all kinds of feelings about being adopted. Yeah, because she was, she was, she was, she, the, the, one of the biggest problems was she was premature. Um, she came out, she was supposed to come out April 6th, she came out July 23rd, and she was premature, so that made me feel like one of the big, that was one of my biggest failures in life. I felt like it was my fault. The doctors never really explained why she was premature. She just came out early. And just to know when she came out and had to, you know, she had to have all these tubes on her. She had to have, she had to be placed in the incubator. I just felt like the biggest failure. Um, I felt like I was letting her down. There's nothing I could do about it. And that pretty much triggered uh, all kind of different emotions inside of me that I never really even dealt with. Yeah, because it must have been like, you know, that you must have felt like a bad father, just like, um, you know, you felt like your mother gave you up. All those, all those things about birth and not good parenting and all and all that must have been triggered. Absolutely. Absolutely. So then so then when did you actually start thinking that today was going to be the day or had you thought that before on previous I, days? I, previous I went to the bridge at 22 at 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 age 19 is when I was was ultimately diagnosed with with um depression um with um you know and uh, they tried to, uh, they did some random tests and was trying to, they diagnosed me with having a borderline personality disorder. Uh, and that was after, that stemmed from an episode where I had a pen, where I kind of had a nervous breakdown and ended up having my first hospitalization. None of my family knew, um, every, everybody kind of knew that I had it, to, thought that I had it together and that I was a jovial, happy, go lucky person until I was 19 years old and I got in an argument with a, a ex, my ex-girlfriend at the time and I kind of just, I had a nervous breakdown. I just blew up. And, you know, it was my first episode where, you know, I ended up grabbing a knife, police were called out, I was detained, I was taken to a psychiatric evaluation, and this is my first time ever dealing with mental health, ever dealing with, with anything like depression or anything like that, so it was a shock to me. Uh-huh. So I, was, I battled it for three years, from 19 to 22, just not, I didn't, I didn't, I, I tried to get on medication, I tried to go talk to a couple of therapists, none of which worked, um, Everybody felt like I, I didn't have an issue. I went to a couple of different therapists that were, that were bad for me, prescribed me wrong medications. So by the time I turned 22, I never really accepted that I had depression still. I just was running around, you know, feeling like I should, I should be okay. I'm all right. I mean, everything, nobody around me has depression. I mean, what is depression? I mean, I come uh-huh. from an African-American-based community where they don't, nobody talks about mental health. Nobody talks about depression. Nobody talks about any of these things. So... So yeah. for me to be by myself already isolated, thinking that I'm different, I'm not going to, you know, tell myself, oh, I'm, I'm even more different now that I have depression. I just saw so I denied it all. Yeah. Nobody ever talks about depression, even in white communities. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's kept a secret, which is yeah. always it's a challenge. It's the big elephant in the room. <laughs> total, definitely the big total, elephant in the room. Very big. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. So, so... Did, had you had you thought about it before? Had you made plans? I think about it. I, I tried to before before I went to the bridge to be you know 100 percent blood and honest with you. I've had I had about 14 separate attempts that I tried to do on the side before I went to the bridge. Wow! Um, I, I, like, I had a couple color. I've had a couple cutting episodes. I had a couple overdoses on pills episodes that I tried to do. A couple times that I tried to crash cars. 
I mean, it was just, it was, it was, it was, you know, at least, I had at least 14 or 15 attempts before uh, March 11, 2005. And um, did you, um, when, when you had, for any of these attempts, were you put, did, you know, was there an ambulance? Did they take you to the hospital? Only hospitalization I've ever been in, uh, well, the two, the two that I've been in, only two times I've ever been hospitalized was the time when I was 19 when my first initial, um, when I grabbed the knife and ran from the house, the police were called because my sister was there. But the other, and then the other time was when I went after the bridge, I was taken to the hospital after that. Those were the only two times I've been to the hospital. The other 12 times where I was attempting on my own, it was just an attempt that was unsuccessful and and nobody ever knew. Nobody ever knew. Now that I'm speaking. Hmm. Okay. So, um, so now, so then what was different? What was different on, on that day that you went to the bridge? I think, I think I got, I think I was just tired to be honest with you. I mean, I've, I've always been able to pull myself up no matter how bad things gotten. I've always been able to, you know, pull myself out of the madness some kind of way. You know, even when I, you know, had uh, attempts before, I was always able to, you know, jump back and prop back. But this day was just, it was like I woke up and the weight of the world was on my chest. The equivalent of like a car, like you wake up and a car is like parked on your chest. That's how it felt. And I was just, I got to the point where it was like, I couldn't, I'm tired of living like this. I can't, uh-huh. there's no way I can do this anymore. Uh-huh. And? So I, when I woke up that morning, it was, it was, it was pretty much, this is it. I got to make a decision. I got to figure out how to get out of pain. And like I said, I just got up, um, I went to go pump some gas. I barely had any money in my, in, in, you know, in, in my in my pocket, but I had enough money to get a couple dollars in gas. And I, and I told myself, you know, as I'm pumping, I thought about the Golden Gate Bridge. How? Why? I have no idea. Because it was never premeditated before, and I never even knew, like I said, that that Golden Gate Bridge was iconic for suicide attempts. I just, on a, on a, on impulse, that day, March 11, 2005, chose to go to the bridge. Drove out there. I even had to ask for direction. And I was mm-hmm. thinking that the when I asked the toll the toll caper on the Bay Bridge, maybe if I asked them for directions, they'll look at me and ask me why. Because part mm. of me was really telling myself, if she asks me why when I get up here and ask for any directions, I'm going to tell her why. And maybe she can give me help. But she didn't. Uh. She just gave me directions and I went on my way. So I got there and it was a park right in front, which most people know the Golden Gate Bridge. Once you get out there, there's never parks available so frequently and easily. But when I got out there on that north side, it was a park available. I pulled into that stall. I left the keys in ignition because I had no point of going back, I grabbed my prepaid phone and I said, I'm going to make one phone call. By the time I got out there, I had 10,000 reasons to jump and I had probably no reasons to stay. So I told myself, this is what I'm going to do. Like, this is, there's no coming back. So I, I called one person. They didn't answer did, the phone. Did, and that's when I found a good spot. Who, wait, who did you call? I mean, what was the relationship? Uh, I called a friend. I called a, I called a, uh, one of my, one of the good friends of mine. She didn't answer the phone. I just, I just needed somebody to, to, to basically a familiar voice to hear. And, you know, he was, he was busy at the time or the call didn't go through. So I just repeat, I just started walking out and found a good spot. And once I found a good spot, that's when I decided to jump. Do you think if she would have answered that she could have talked you out of it? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's in these, it, it, these, these moments are so crucial. And that's why I tell, that's why I travel and do as much as I can to make people understand about how important the moment the seconds before things about to happen are important. The seconds, if, if just the sound of her voice would have delayed my attempt enough to where, you know, somebody else would have probably been able to see me or give me some help. But because she didn't answer the phone, it was just, oh, okay, well, this is, this is, must be meant to be. 
And so I dropped the phone and then I proceeded to, to back up off the rail. And then once I found a good spot, I looked over there, looked over the rail and saw that it was nothing that was going to stop me. And I took about four, five or six steps back. I closed my eyes and I started walking towards the railing. At this time is where um, I didn't even know um, officer. He was an officer. I didn't even know anything. First of all, I didn't know anything about that. I was so focused on it's about to be over, Kevin. It's about to be over. Just, just get over that railing. That I didn't even look to my left. I looked to my right. As soon as I started going, approaching the railing and, and jumping over it, he, it was a voice that stopped me. But it wasn't a voice that was saying, hey, what are you doing? What's going on? It was more of a, hey, is everything okay? That's what I got from his voice. That's not exactly what he said, but that's what the interpretation from me and the distraction, got, that's uh-huh. what I got out of it. And it was enough to distract me to where as I'm jumping over the railing, I grabbed the rail and turned uh-huh. myself around on that cord where you where everybody sees that picture. That's That's how that happened. I had already jumped. He thought on the upside because you can't see me that I was already gone, just like everybody else thought I was gone because you can't see me. Hmm. So I ended up turning around on that cord, and now I'm pretty much upset. I'm, 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 I'm going to tell you why, because I always told myself, you know, I, I always stick by my words of what I'm going to do something. If I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. I didn't come here to jump over railing and be in the, on a pole. For one, it's, it's, it's March in, in San Francisco, so it's freezing cold. I don't like the cold. I hate the cold. I've got shorts on and a t-shirt. That's the first element that's got me upset. The huh. second element is I'm afraid of heights. So I'm 220 feet in the air, and my whole int- my whole thing was to jump and not to put myself in this position. So now I'm 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 in pain. I'm, my mind's running all over the place. I'm freezing cold, and I'm 220 feet in the air. And I got this voice that distracted me on the in- you know ahead of time, trying to get my attention. And I'm yelling at him and. He's just calm and, and, hey, I just want to talk to you. I'm yelling back at him and, and, and screaming at him and upset. And this goes on for about 15 minutes before he can get close enough to me to where I can hear his voice a little longer. And so we, 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 I hate to interrupt you, Kevin, but that was the music. And we will leave this on a, um, on a, cl- as a, cl- a cliffhanger, so to speak, or a bridge hanger. Um, and when we come back, we'll hear more about this story. Um, so you can tell us what it was that that man did uh, and said that got you to finally, obviously, uh, not jump. So stay tuned. Um, my guests today are Kevin Berthia and Om Devi. We're going to be hearing her story when we come back as well. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. 
www.drcarol.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Here today with two stories of depression with thought-provoking endings. We have been hearing the story of Kevin Berthea, uh, and we sort of left him for the time being on the Golden Gate Bridge, and we're going to be hearing the story of Om Devi, who wrote a book called A Dialogue with Depression about her husband's uh, depression and his suicidal ideas. Um, so, Kevin, let's go back to you. There you were on the bridge, and you hear a voice, uh-huh. a real voice, not a, not a hallucination voice, um, and, and you got the sense in his voice that he cared about you. That he cared. It was, it was that simple. Um, in the midst of everything that I had going on, that voice distracted. And the chaos that was going on in my brain, his voice penetrated through that chaos. That, that voice of compassion, that voice of caring, um, penetrated through everything that I was going on and it, and it stopped me and you know I put myself in the, on this cord and now for the next 15 minutes we, we he pretty much is just trying to get my attention and I'm yelling and I'm going back and forth with him but after that 15 minutes and he's patient um, you know the bridge is at a standstill uh, you know I got, I got, a, I got a helicopter I know I can feel this helicopter behind me uh, I can feel all the eyes on me I can feel all the tension I can feel everything going on and in the midst of all that he's patient um, he's, he's kind He's caring, and he's just trying to get communication with me. And after all that goes down, he finally gets communication with me. And at the time, I never even look up. Um, I never identified him to be a cop. I never identified him to be um, anything other than other than a voice of, of understanding. And for the next 92 minutes, um, we stood on this in, in this in this unpredictable situation. And for 92 minutes, he just pretty much just listen to me. I spoke all of 89 of those 92 minutes, and he never interrupted me. Uh, he uh, never asked me, hey, I, I think we need to hurry this up. This man that I didn't know nothing about, nothing from me, listened to everything that I said for those 89 minutes. And he learned about everything that I wanted to tell everybody in my life. He learned more about in my life than anybody else knew up to that point. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and because I was able to talk about all those things and get all that stuff out of me, I was able to, you know, feel a lot better. And that weight of the world that I, that I woke up with was no longer, you know, it was still there, but it wasn't as heavy. Uh-huh. And then what happened? Um, he, after, you know, and I know he listened. This is how I know he listened. I mean, because out of, out of all the things that I talked to him about, um, he was out there for, like I said, 89 minutes. And he listened to all the things that I said to him. I talked about, I started at when I was five all the way up to current day at 22. So he pretty much listened to 17 years of my life. And out of everything that, that, that he listened to, 
he knew the one thing that was going to trigger and bring me back over the relic. Because it was, to truth be told, it was only one real thing that got me over the relic. It was only going to be one thing that bring me back. My daughter. How I felt about my daughter. Mm. He listened to me. And the reason I know, I know he listened to me because it was a different type of emotion when I talked about her. It was different, and, you know, when I talked about my adoptive mom, when I talked about my adoptive dad, when I talked about my biological mom, when I talked about my wife, it was a different type of, of, of emotion. But when I talked about my daughter, he was able to see that that, that, that that was the interior hurt. That was the thing that was hurting me the most. And he made me identify and made me see that you need to be there for her birthday. Her birthday, which I went to the bridge March 5th, March uh, uh, 11, 2005, her birthday was the next month, April 6th. So her birthday mm. was less than a month. He made mm. me realize that I needed to be there for her birthday. Something that I never had, I never thought about. I was looking for one reason to live, and he gave me that one reach. Uh-huh. He huh. was able to help me identify that, hey, if any, I know all this other stuff is going to be there, but let her be the one reason. And that's all and he so, said in 92 minutes. That's all, that, so, that's all I remember him ever saying. So had he called for the helicopter and all that? Had he called... Uh, I assume the that helicopter he ended up ended up coming. I don't. I'm not. I don't believe that he called the helicopter. He was. He was called because somebody else had called and said that it was a young man that was thinking about you know jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was one of my friends or something that found out that I was going out there. I'm not really sure. But he, you know, the helicopter ended up being out there, and that's how they got that iconic picture. It was from you know they, the, the the photographer was reportedly from a helicopter, and they ended up taking that picture from behind huh. because I could feel the helicopter. I can hear it. So at some point you just crawled up. Um, um, after the conversation was pretty, after I pretty much got everything out, um, you know, and he made me realize that I need to be with my daughter. Um, I was pretty much out of it. So once he talked, we, we talked for you know and got an understanding. I still never looked up. Uh, I eventually when I gave him the okay that he could lift me up. I just lifted both my arms up, and I just remember two people grabbing me. Um, huh. I remember um, it was reporters, all kind of different people up there, and I remember one of the officers taking my T-shirt and covering up my face, and I'm thanking him. I, I'm thankful for him because I wasn't ready to face. I had no idea that that picture was going to be front page of the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh-huh. And I never was ready to face um, what I did that day. Huh. So they lifted you up, and then, and then they took, took you in an ambulance to a hospital. Yeah, I was taken to San Francisco General, and I sat there for two and a half hours, and then I was taken to um, Fremont Medical Center, where I stayed about 13 days. It took me about five days pretty much to just recuperate, uh, because prior to going to the bridge, two months before that, I stopped eating, I stopped sleeping. Um, so I was just I was just pretty much a mess for five days. Uh-huh. I had to get into the flow of eating and sleeping and things like that again. Wow. What an amazing story. Well, I am so... And that's so. That is true. What you said about one thing to live for. Well, now yeah. let's let's go to Om Devi now, um, and her story about her husband. Um, Om, do you want to do you want to react first um, to Kevin's story, or do you want to just start at the beginning of yours? Well, <clears throat> one thing. Uh, there are incredible similarities. Um, there wasn't. Um, Oh, the publicity that uh, happened for Kevin, and I'm sorry about that. That's probably not exactly what you wanted. Um, but uh, the thing that's very similar that leads up to this is uh, incredible exhaustion, fatigue, just being mm-hmm. tired of of not being able to put things together. 
um, mm-hmm. whether you're thinking how to put things together or um, it's physically just not happening, uh, that is, it, it's amazing. And this fatigue leads to a point of needing to take some sort of action, uh, no matter how um, useful and reasonable uh, you are, uh, you, the individual suffering uh, cannot, cannot see it, uh, cannot yeah. do anything. Uh, and, and that is the huge similarity uh-huh. um, in Kevin and, and my husband. Um, he, my husband was uh, very much uh, a, a worker. He's a scientist. And um, he worked very hard at what he did. He was very bright at what he did. Uh, and he was very hooked on showing other people that he was bright and could get things done in extraordinarily short bits of time that would take people much longer. Um, in the interim of dealing with his job and his activities at work, um, his family became less and less important because he could not deal with the emotional aspect of, of dealing with family. Um, it was his goal to get something accomplished uh, in his life uh, that was important um, in his career, uh, and uh, he went after it. Uh, the, key, the key issue for him was... Um, he looked for praise for this work in all the wrong places. Uh, uh, his family thought he was brilliant, had his, uh, in, including myself as a wife, um, you know, and, and thought he was fantastic, but all he wanted was a pat on the back from, from his, his boss. And bosses uh, uh, want to get a job done, uh, and they really don't, most don't really care about uh, uh, how one feels uh, in a working position like this and doesn't care about emotional state as long as someone gets the job done. And, well, now, uh, your, your husband was a physician, right? That's correct. That's what, correct. What was his but specialty? He, his specialty was oncology, cancer. Ah. And when he worked one-on-one with patients... Uh, I think that was his most brilliant and his most compassionate time of his life because he was forced to deal with people, and that was not his preference. He loved books. He loved uh, living in his head, um, and he lost the connection with his heart. And um, I think when, when one loses this uh, very powerful connection, one becomes unhealthy. And uh, people always encouraged him uh, to push with his mind, uh, not, not connecting with the heart. And uh, it was a very difficult process to watch because he, he became more and more involved in work. It was essentially uh, an addiction, um, uh, one of those things that people think are acceptable, you know, working hard. A workaholic. Uh, and, he became a workaholic. A workaholic, exactly mm-hmm. that. And the problem is, 
It's as bad as uh, shooting something in your arm, uh, smoking something, uh, whatever the addiction is. An addiction is an addiction, and it re- reduces you. It, it uh, steps you back from relationships, accepting the good and the bad and the ugly, uh, all of these things that go on uh, when you have to deal with other people um, at a caring level. And how many so, years were you married? I was married for 37 years. Oh, my God. Well, less three days. <laughs> I'm sorry, say that again? 37 years, less three days. Uh-huh. And uh, so how, well, um, well, I don't want to get to the end of the story before. Um, well, I mean, I guess uh, we're going to be talking about your husband's suicide. So how old was he when he committed suicide? Uh, he was about 67. Well, do you think that, you know, being an oncologist is a very hard job? I mean, besides, especially as a workaholic, because you're, you're doing it even more hours than um, one, you know, than, than average. Um, and, and seeing, like, seeing a lot of patients die and all of that, do you think that that played a big role? No, I think actually that was the part that made him stronger. I think the part that made him weaker was when he stepped back with one-on-one patient care and he actually started doing the research and the studies and developing drug trials and um, various other technological trials to work with cancer, um, uh, in particular um, towards at the end was uh, breast cancer, uh, but uh, I think being dealing with the paperwork and then getting to a high enough position to actually have to deal with finances uh, made him step back from the humanity, uh-huh. and I think that was that was a, a very important thing uh, because he, as I said, he's always lived inside his head. Um, everybody praised him for being brilliant and. Uh, and educated, and the deal was um, somebody had to connect uh, the compassion with it. And when he worked with patients, he was very, he, he could read things that many physicians were unable to do. He, he could get behind things that were written off uh, by other physicians. Uh, he was able to find things other uh-huh. than cancer that was calling, causing issues with a person and discomfort. Uh-huh. And so when he worked with a human being, another human being, uh, it, it, he was brilliant. Uh, uh-huh. And he was able to combine the heart and mind, whereas uh, when he started getting more involved in research, and technology, uh, mm-hmm. he stepped back from yes, of course that's, the humanity. Yes, and of course that's really frustrating too. You know, having to try to get grants and everything, and research, and not finding the cure, and so on. But tell us about. Um, you said that he was depressed, or what I've read about the book uh, says that he was depressed for decades. What What did he do to try to uh, get help? Well. You know, he really didn't because the the depression, living inside his head, being bright, reading books, uh, finding uh, finding things other others were not able to find as easily, uh, made him people overlooked uh, 
that he was depressed because he was isolating himself in an acceptable way. So did he ever get to see a psychiatrist? Um, When we were not getting along well, and we were not getting along well because I, in the interim, being with him was being isolated because he knew I was independent enough to be able to take care of myself. Uh, but, But in terms of emotions, you need two people. And he would run from... Uh, relationships. Uh, he wasn't. Uh, he wasn't able to maintain an emotional relationship with another human being. Yes. Uh, so, so when you weren't getting along, you started. We decided. To I suggested that we go to a psychologist uh, to be able to dis- discuss issues. Yeah. The psychologist we went to, we saw the person individually and we saw them together. Mm-hmm. And um, I really heard what this person had to say, and uh, he didn't. But in my understanding and hearing, I made the assumption because he was so bright, he heard, he heard things in, order to, in, in terms of how to make things better, but he did not. And he went right back to work. Uh, he, he utilized information from the psychologist for being able to deal with people at work better rather than dealing with his family better. Uh-huh. So hmm. it, was, uh, it was a fascinating thing. As a result, I became more isolated and frustrated and actually became very angry because he was not listening. Mm-hmm. And so it obviously that didn't help the relationship any. And as a wife um, and supporter who was not allowed to support, like I, it did in the beginning, I hear the music. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, we do need to take a break now. When we come back, you can tell us uh, sort of... Uh, what happened in those last in the last month or so? Uh, you know how things kept getting worse, and and what you think finally precipitated his suicide. And then sure. also, Kevin, I would like to hear you, um, like you know, your reaction to Ohm's story. Absolutely. So Absolutely. when we come back, my guests today are Kevin Berthia and Ohm Devi. And when we come back, we'll hear more from them, uh, their stories of depression and. Um, and stay tuned. Obviously, cannot leave at this point. Uh, you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll free right now 1 866 472 5787. And ask our all star team to answer your questions. That's 1 866 472 5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. 
Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the Terrorism Hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, here today with two stories of depression with very thought-provoking endings. We heard from Kevin Berthia. We're um, talking now with Om Devi, whose book is called A Dialogue with Depression. And you were talking about your husband who was depressed and who was isolating himself, which, of course, makes it harder to reach him. And um, I wanted to talk to his talk about now to get to his suicide attempts. And you were just saying um, during the break that he made one, his first attempt 11 years before his final one. So what happened 11 years before? 11 years before, uh, again, there was some frustration with the job. Uh, there was, he took a job in a different state from where we were living, which we actually liked living in. And so he separated us. Uh, and, of course, I was going there, uh, visiting, uh, making an attempt to transition my, my profession, my job, uh, to get to be closer to him. But his first comment when I was going to move there is, I don't understand why you're coming here because um, you have nothing here and I have everything. That was uh, an interesting quote, but I was his wife and, uh, and I followed him and went with him because that was the thing to do. Right, and so um, what did he do that time? And at that time... Uh, it was a series of events that happened. Uh, his father had triple heart bypass. My father had a um, uh, just an end life, end game of, of life, and died. Who he was very close to. My mother had a heart attack <laughs> uh, because of that response. And I don't think, even as a physician. When it when these things hit him personally, he could he could handle all of that. And so what did he do uh, to I, take his life? I was well. What did he do to take his to life? Try to, or, to try to take. How did he attempt suicide? Um, the the successful time. No, or no. The, talking about this first time. The first time, uh, he was dabbling with a knife at his wrist. Um, uh-huh. and 
he turned himself in when he did this to a hospital mm. um, where uh, it was really in terms of, of how things are dealt with. He was, he was given a very strong ju- drug of Prozac. Um, when, I fi- when I got there, because I was driving to see his father with a triple heart bypass, mm. uh, thinking my husband was just fine working. Uh, then I obviously detoured uh, to, to find out that he was hospitalized for clinical depression, and they put him on drugs. And it was a very frightening experience, this bright, independent man. Um, I go in, uh, have to go through metal detectors to see him and make sure I didn't have any, any objects that he could use hmm. for suicide. Um, I wasn't allowed to see his psychiatrist unless he gave permission and he was in no condition to um, uh, allow me uh, to, to get this permission. I, mm-hmm. Even though I was married to him for a long time, I was his family, even though he did obviously have brothers, sister, mother, father. Um, it didn't count. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, he was the one that was required to give permission, and he was yeah. unable to do it. So here I am, hanging out with with no support and not knowing what to do because I never even knew any of this was uh, going on. Mm-hmm. And, well, let's, uh, I'm worried about I'm worried about time. So, can you tell us about the final attempt eight years later? Well, final successful attempt. Well, about it was more like later. ten or eleven years after yes. that. Uh, in the middle, in the interim, he tried very hard to uh, take care of himself. I, I am an Ayurvedic practitioner. I teach yoga and do massage. I worked with him. Uh, he really struggled and worked hard with meditation and exercise. And then he got involved in another job where he had to move away out of town in an area that is, you know, the climate is not, uh, was not good. It was not a sunny, happy place. Mm-hmm. Um, and there he worked, and he would come back to the sunny place and me uh, for visiting. Uh, but he separated it because, again, he felt my career was important to me, and he wanted to make sure that I was able to continue rather than having to start over okay, again. Okay, so what did he do 11 years later? 11 years later... Um, he, uh, just, his health weakened, uh, and, uh, went to a psychiatrist. They gave him meds that were not, um, I didn't think they were very good because he developed tremors. Uh, his vision was blurring and I said, you got to try something else, but no, this is what the doctor said and I have to do this. And, uh... Over time, rather than coming home on long weekends, as he was doing the first uh, several, year, two, several years, uh, he complained of being very tired and had to prepare for work. So therefore, okay, Om, he could I know not... this is very difficult for you, but, but I'm really worried that we're not going to be having enough time. I would like to have time for Kevin to comment, and I want to have time for myself to tell people what they should do in these circumstances. So I'm sorry if it seems like I'm rushing you along, but could you tell us what he finally did to, to suicide? Well, he isolated himself, withdrew, practiced making knots, and uh, hung himself at work. At work? Hmm. 
So he was making a statement, really, to to his work about how happy... And the statement was he could not uh, bring his family and work together anymore. He didn't know what to do with it, and he was tired uh, trying to make something happen that he was not able to happen, and he just... uh, One of the last words within a certain time period was, I have had enough. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of um, a lot of similarities between your story of your husband and Kevin's story. Kevin, do you want to give a quick comment, reaction Absolutely. to your story? Just, real quick, I just think that, um, like I say, that's why I always tell people anywhere I go, anywhere I speak, that we're responsible for each other. That deposit exactly. that your husband was looking for, he was looking for that deposit that he put back into the world. He was looking for that somebody to give that deposit back to him. And it's not always that family is going to be able to deposit what we need, especially as men. Uh, men need more of deposits. They need more of a thank you, I appreciate what you did. The things that we don't think most men need to hear, we need to hear. And that's not, you know, based on race. That's just most men don't We think we take for granted that men need to be appreciated so that they can feel appreciated. Because it is hard it's struggling with different different issues. And I, I'm hoping that, you know, somebody out there hears this and, and, and understands that the deposit that that he needed, he, he just needed that deposit back. Just a simple, hey, I appreciated what you did today. Or, or thank you for uh, going above and beyond. Just that those simple things would have been able to make him understand that both both lines of, he, he can deal with both sides. So mm-hmm. that, that was just my tidbit on that. Yeah, that's, that's ex- exactly it. Um and uh, as, as I said, when I told him he was great and he was doing an amazing job, he wanted to hear that from a boss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they don't do that. And that, so it was kind of an angry, uh, an angry statement when he chose to do that at work, which you know, rather than the privacy of his yeah. home. Um, well, yeah. I just want to, I want to sort of tie this together. I want to mention some of the things that I was taking notes that both stories had in common. First of all. The importance of human contact, um, you know, Kevin, with uh, how that got you down from the bridge, and Ohm, how um, it was your husband's withdrawal from that that made him feel more and more depressed. And in both situations, um, both men, no one knew that uh, they were as depressed as they were. You both kind of hit it. Um, mm-hmm. Both were tired. Um, both were they needed somebody to hear them more, better, be on the same wavelength. And then also the key thing that I want to talk about is uh, the failures of the mental health system. Uh, As a psychiatrist, it it actually saddens me to see what has happened to the mental health system. Um, The main thing being that psychiatrists, uh, except for myself, I do this, but most psychiatrists these days don't do therapy. They just prescribed medication, and, and no medication, even if it's the right medication, the great medication, it is not going to cure anybody of anything, including depression. You need therapy mm-hmm. along with the medication, mm-hmm. and of course, that brings up the, the whole issue of uh, finding a good therapist, finding someone who can listen uh, well and who knows what to say and, um, and, and who keeps um, in in close contact with, if it's a separate psychiatrist who's prescribing the medication, then, of course, there's the, usually this doesn't happen, there's a a gap between the two. Neither one talks to each other to coordinate the treatment, 
and, uh, and then there's that gap, and, and so neither one, neither, neither of the aspects of treatment are successful. So, what, so if you, I'm talking to my listeners now, if you uh, or, or a loved one of yours or a friend of yours is depressed, first of all, you need to recognize it and, not, and see beyond the smiley face of the person uh, that you're, you know, that you um, are trying to connect with, that maybe that's just, there's a thing called smiling depression, in fact, where people put on a smiley face, but deep down they're really incredibly depressed. Um, so the first thing is sort of noticing it, and then the second thing is making suggestions of going to therapy and the kind of therapy, um, a sufficient therapy. And, and yes, those things that you mentioned, OM, do help as well, but it's not sufficient, certainly massages and, and um, mindfulness and, and meditation. Those are all helpful, but you, for depression, you need a combination of uh, what, at least once a week therapy psychotherapy and the right antidepressant and coordination between the mental health professionals if the psychiatrist isn't doing the therapy themselves. Um, I actually don't see patients who won't let, come to me for therapy along with medication if they need medication, but it's the therapy that's the key. Um, I want to give people ways to be in touch uh, with Kevin and Ohm. Kevin has a uh, a, a Twitter account, which is at Kevin Berthea, uh, at Kevin, K-E-V-I-N, and Berthea is B-E-R-T-H-I-A, B-E-R-T-H-I-A. And then for Ohm, uh, her book is called A Dialogue with Depression, and you would like people to go where to get that? Uh, one of two places, Amazon. Dot com or iUniverse. Okay. Amazon, again, the title is A Dialogue with Depression. And we're going to be hopefully hearing from Kevin about his um, new book <laughs> soon because, Kevin, your story Absolutely. and Absolutely. your wisdom from it um, would also be incredibly helpful. So I hope uh, uh, that that comes soon. So thank yes, you ma'am. both very Absolutely. much for sharing your deeply personal stories. And I'm sure, I'm sure you're helping a lot of listeners And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 